Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. We are starting a brand new sermon series uh, this weekend. It's a three-week series where we will walk through the book of James together and specifically focus on the pieces of the text that show us and teach us the biblical response um, to hard things. Um, There's this myth and this lie that we can believe as Christians that life's going to be easy because we've got Jesus by our side. And that is not a promise that is anywhere in scripture. We know we are going to face difficult things. And we have such an opportunity to be known for the ways in which we respond to adversity as opposed to being known or being defined by the suffering and the trial that we face. So that is our, our goal and our hope for these next few weeks as we really dig into the book of James and and read through it together. And I thought that since um, I know that some of you have read the book of James, you've studied it, some of you have never done that. And so it's important that we start our conversation with just learning a little bit more about the book, where it came from, how it came to be, all of those um, fun facts. So the book of James uh, was written by a man named, you guessed it, James. Now, the author of the book of James is actually, um, there's some confusion around it, some differing opinions, um, because James was a very common Jewish name. Jesus actually had two disciples named James, and neither of those are believed to have been the author of our book. Uh, The author of the book of James is widely believed to have been the half-brother of Jesus. Um, His name was James, and um, he's actually referred to by Paul in the book of Galatians as a pillar of the church because the author James was a church, uh, sorry, a leader in the church of Jerusalem. His nickname was the just because he was often known as someone who was always uh, reminding people of the law, reminding people of our responsibility in keeping the law, reminding us of our responsibility in helping one another take steps toward Jesus as well. Uh, The book of James is the 20th of 26 books in the New Testament, and it is one of 21 epistles in the New Testament. And the word epistle is the Greek word for letter. Uh, More specifically, a letter that was written to a a very specific audience or for a very specific purpose. For example, it might have been uh, written to address a matter of theology or doctrine or morals or ethics. There's usually a really specific purpose in the letter. Now, what is an epistle? I mentioned it is the Greek word for letter, um, but it usually is uh, made up of five specific parts. The really cool thing about a letter that's called an epistle is that it reads more like a conversation. So it's not going to sound like formal teaching. It's not going to sound like someone standing up here preaching at you. It's going to read like something that you could actually sit down across the table from someone and talk about. Um, And that's one of the things I love about the way that James writes is that it feels very relational. It feels very approachable and like something that we could talk about with one another. 
So the five parts of an epistle, uh, let's read through what those five parts are, and then we're going to look and see how these five parts come to life in the book of James. So the five parts of an epistle are a salutation or greeting, some type of hello from our author. Uh, And then the second is an expression of thanks, so a way to point everyone back to God, to recognize God's presence in your life. Then there's the main body, which really gets to the the meat of the conversation, the, the purpose for why that letter was written in the first place. The fourth part is... Um, if needed, a greeting to specific individuals. So if there's someone in particular that the author wants to address, they will name who that person is or who that people group might be. And the fifth part is simply a closing. It might be a prayer or something else that kind of wraps up that letter with a pretty bow uh, to move on to the next thing. So now that we know what those five parts are of an epistle, let's uh, dig a little bit deeper and just see how those five parts come to life in the book of James. Uh, The first is a salutation or greeting. And in verse one of the the entire book of James, um, he gets, you know, right to the point and kind of tells us who he is and who he's talking to. So here's what verse one says in scripture. It says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. What we now know uh, about the book of James is that his intended audience was really Christians. It was people who were a part of the church, who were navigating and learning what it meant to follow what they were learning when they came to church. And so James is writing to all of these people. Uh, The second part of an epistle is that expression of thanks. And what I love about the way that James writes is there's not one particular verse where we would say, that's where he expressed thanks, but it's really sprinkled throughout the entire text. And it gives us lots of examples and reminders of how everything points back to God's goodness, God's beauty, and God's presence in our lives. The third part of an epistle, and in the third part, um, how the the main body uh, comes to life in the book of James is really as a how-to guide for believers. So James wants us to have a better understanding of what it means um, to live the Christian life. So the the book is going to offer us um, context for that. There are eight main themes in the book of James. Um, Here is a list of them, just so that you know all the things that James um, addresses in his letter. There's suffering and trials, endurance under persecution, faith and works, maturing and wisdom, controlling the tongue, cultivating humility, caring for others, and persevering with patience. So you can very, um, if you read the book of James, which I would love to encourage you to do this week before you come back next week, um, it's only five chapters. You can see each of those eight themes present throughout the text. The fourth part of an epistle is a greeting to a specific individual. And I mentioned that James was really writing to the church at large, um, to everyone who was a Christian at the time. And so there's not really a specific like call out to a certain individual, but what I love about the conversational aspect of his writing is that 14 times throughout the book of James, he says the words, dear brothers and sisters, which again, just kind of speaks to that, you know, I'm talking to people who I know, I'm talking to people who I love, inviting them into that conversation. The fifth part of an epistle is the closing. And for the book of James, it kind of ends rather abruptly, kind of at times can feel like it comes out of nowhere, Um, but he doesn't really wrap it up with a pretty bow or like, be super encouraging. It's really a call to action of like, it is time to go. We do not have time to waste. Let's get on with everything I've just taught you. Like it's time to put this into practice. So that is really how the book ends. So now that you know so many things about the book of James, uh, we're just going to jump right into the text today. And I mentioned the eight themes that are present throughout the book. And as much as I wish that we could visit all eight themes over the next three weeks, 
You guys already often tell me that I talk too fast, so I didn't want to try to fit all of them in because I would have been talking even faster than I already do. So we're going to focus on three specific themes, one per week. And again, our main focus is the concept and the reminder of overcoming adversity. What does that look like? So we're going to really focus in on the three ways that James addresses that topic. So our three topics are going to be, today we're talking about suffering and trials, specifically our response, the moment that something difficult comes our way. How are we to respond? What does that actually look like in our lives? Next week, we'll talk about maturing and wisdom, specifically godly wisdom as opposed to worldly wisdom. We're going to challenge you to think about the people who you're surrounding yourself with, um, the people who are pouring into you, making sure that they are pointing you toward godly wisdom, um, and then giving you that reminder of how you should be doing that for others as well. The third week, we'll talk about what it looks like to persevere with patience, because we know that it's not just important to have a game plan for the moment something difficult hits, but you need a game plan for the entirety of that season of your life. It could be the rest of your life that you have to persevere with patience through something. So today we're digging in, diving into uh, what it looks like to uh, talk about suffering and trials and what James has to say about this. So I'm going to read to you the first few verses in chapter one of the book of James. So read along with me. It says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers, scattered abroad. Greetings, dear brothers and sisters. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Let's stop right there. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. How many of us would say that that is our immediate response to when troubles come our way? Um, if your hand is up, just go ahead and come on up here and you can, you can handle the rest of the service today because I think it's something that we all find pretty challenging. And I think that when I read that verse at first, I'm like, troubles? Well, I can think of people who have faced way more difficult things than I have. So this probably just doesn't apply to me. Well, that's not the case. Um, I think that if we're all honest with one another, we have all faced difficult things in our lives. We have all walked through troubles. Um, so if you can't think of anything, if nothing comes to mind immediately for you, I wanna challenge you to just dig a little bit deeper um, because there's probably something in there. This is an opportunity to really think about how your response has, has mirrored what the Bible teaches our response should be when we face difficult conflict, when we face uh, betrayal, when we face addiction, when we face grief and loss and challenges that just are completely unexpected. We're going to be talking about what our response to those things can be. Uh, I think Western culture in general is defined by our ability to just sweep things under the rug and just assume that no one ever needs to know about that thing and it's never going to come back into the light. Um, but too many of us know that that is simply not the case. Because anytime we think that we have swept something under the rug, there's a good chance that we are still feeling the weight and the pain and the hurt that it has caused in our lives. When troubles come our way, I'm just not sure that we really know how to make our response to that joy in the moment. More likely, our response is something more like, seriously, God? Like, what are you trying to teach me? Are you still here? Where are you in this? And we're more likely to ask some of these questions or to have some of these thoughts of really just trying to see if God's even in that with us. 
Um, it's hard to imagine joy as anything other than some mountaintop, beautiful picture of someone who is just smiling in the face of adversity, um, eagerly accepting any trial and tribulation that comes their way. There is nothing that can get that person down. You all know somebody in your life who lives that way and they drive you crazy because you just don't get how they're so joyful all the time. Sometimes we have this confusing definition in our minds of what strength looks like or what a strong person looks like. I think that uh, when we hear that we should um, experience joy, we think of just being completely resilient in the face of difficult things. Like when I think of resiliency, I think of a rubber band that you can just stretch super, 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 super thin. And the second you let go, for the most part, it bounces right back into place. And we think that that is what resiliency is supposed to look like. We don't let things affect us. We don't let things bother us. We just keep on going. But in fact, I think resilience looks a a lot more like being stretched way, 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 way further than we ever wanted to be. And when we come back together, things look very different because if we're doing it in the way that James teaches, it's moving us closer to the life that Jesus has from us, not further away. Joy helps us become resilient, but how many of us would really describe ourselves as resilient? Again, I think we can more easily think of someone in our life who we would describe that way because all we know of their life is probably their outer shell, what they, what they put out into the world, but we don't know what's going on inside. And they're probably a lot more like yourself than you realize. I think a lot of us are just really tired of trying to be resilient. Uh, the last few years have left us feeling isolated and confused and sad. We're worried about our country, our schools, our kids, their futures, our futures. And the idea of being resilient through that is just not something that I always feel like I have the energy to do every day when I wake up. Again, if, I had, if you had asked me two years ago to show you a strong person, the definition of that would have looked completely different. But over the last five years or so, as I have walked with some of you as your pastor through, through some of the, the darkest, most difficult moments of your life, my definition of what strong looks like are those moments when, when you were in the trenches, when you were in the darkest, furthest valley in your life that you just couldn't see the light out of. That is when you exhibited strength and resiliency. And that is when God gave you the opportunity to grow. These are some of the moments I'm talking about when when I think of someone who is strong, someone who is allowing God to grow their endurance. I think of the person who's able to walk away from a relationship or a job or a situation that you know is not safe for you. I think of the people who are willing to seek professional mental health instead of ignoring how you're feeling. I think about the people who have worked really hard to establish appropriate boundaries in your schedule to protect time with your family. And I think about the people who are truly able to ignore that post on social media and just keep scrolling without feeling a need to engage with it. That is some serious strength. My definition of strength has completely shifted. All of these situations I just described, in the moment, it can feel like a trouble, like we read about in James. It can feel like something difficult in your life that you just have no idea how to face. But what's so cool is what we read, uh, continue reading in the book of James, and here's what it says, starting in verse three. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. 
do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Our endurance has a chance to grow when we go through really hard things. And sometimes I wish that there was a different way that we could grow. I think of times in my life uh, when someone has said something to me along the lines of, like, you've really grown Or like, wow, look how far you've come. I know people have said those things to all of us before. And I know that it's said as an encouragement and as something that should make us really happy and feel really good. But oftentimes what I think about when someone says that is, you don't know the yuck that I went through to get there. You don't know the times when I felt rejected, unwanted, um, told I was incapable or couldn't do something. Those were the lows of my life. And in in those moments, I couldn't see what was coming on the other side. So for all of us, it's almost an opportunity to reframe how we're viewing uh, what it looks like to grow and realizing it's not going to be pretty, it's going to be really messy. We just have to keep taking one step after another. It's in the middle of those situations uh, when things felt bad for me, when I had no choice but to increase my reliance on God in my life. It wasn't because of my strength that I could grow through those trials. It was only because of God's James uh, 1, 3, what what we read about um, growing and our endurance through trials and temptations, it's not necessarily new information. That same wording is found in several other places in scripture, and I want to point just a few of them out to you. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4 say, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Another one, Hebrews 12, 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It is painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Just one more, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. It's almost as if God is telling us that trials and the suffering that comes with those trials sometimes is the way that he's going to grow and increase our spiritual maturity and our reliance on him. And yet somehow we still think that maybe we can get to that point a different way. Maybe it doesn't have to be from suffering Surely there's something that could come from something good, but that's not what scripture tells us the most growth, the most becoming like Jesus will come from. How many of you have ever had someone say the phrase to you, God won't give you more than you can handle? I know I've said it, so I'm not appearing that I'm completely innocent. And I think we all say, when we say it, we mean it as an encouragement, but I absolutely believe that God has given me more than I can handle. I absolutely believe that our world is full of people who have been dealt far more than they are capable of handling. In fact, the Bible is full of stories of people who were in way over their heads. God's design was never that we would be able to handle anything that came our way by ourselves. It wasn't from some inner strength that we were supposed to find or unbury in our lives that that we can cultivate on our own. That's just simply not the case. He wanted us to have no choice but to be so reliant on his strength becoming greater in our lives and his presence in our lives increasing as we walk through difficult things. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. We just read that God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. And James is teaching us that those are the people who will receive the crown of life that God has promised. And that crown is not speaking of our earthly life. Like, like we said at the beginning, it's, that doesn't mean that our life is going to be easy. That crown comes when we reach the point of eternal life with God. James had this hope that if we could fix our eyes on God and on that eternal life that all of us are, are striving and reaching toward, that there would be nothing in life that could keep, make us distracted from the direction we were going. It's very important to uh, clearly distinguish the difference between trials and temptation because trials are things that come from outward circumstances, more likely things that that you cannot control yourself. It's going to happen regardless of what you do to prevent it. Temptation comes from within our own hearts. Both present difficulties and unique challenges that we have to learn to overcome. It's a little confusing when you look at the Greek for some of these words because trial and testing and tribulation and temptation all come from the same word group. So it might be assumed that that the teaching is the same about all of them. But I do believe that each presents its own unique challenges and have to be approached differently. Because to be clear, God is never the source of our temptation to sin. He does not intentionally put evil thoughts in our minds of things that we think um, that we are supposed to, to go toward. That's not from God. But what he does put into our minds and into our hearts and in our souls is the equipping that we need, the strength that we need to resist that temptation. Every trial that we face has the potential to lead us down a path of temptation if we let it. It's often during our saddest or darkest or most stressful or most overwhelming seasons of life that we turn to coping mechanisms that we know are not healthy for us. When we don't understand why we're walking through um, that difficult relationship or that betrayal, that diagnosis, a loss, the mental health challenge, whatever it might be, when we don't understand why that would happen to us too often, it leads us down a path that takes us further away from God because we can't find him in it instead of a path that leads us closer to him. When we are faced with temptation, God is always on our side. He doesn't want us to fail, but unless you and I are super intentional about developing some type of playbook, some type of plan and skill set for what we're going to do when these difficult moments hit, the reality is that we will give into that temptation and into that sin. 
Right now, I want to introduce you to a family in our church. Their names are Katie and Aaron Thompson. And over the next three weeks, we are going to be sharing their story with you guys. They have been so gracious in allowing us to, um, to share their story with you. Um, a season in their life uh, that came unexpectedly, um, a hurdle, a trial, a temptation that popped up that they didn't really think would be a part of, of God's plan for their life. Um, but it's been incredible to see what has come on the other side of it. And I'm going to warn you that today's video is going to leave you on a major cliffhanger. And yes, it is our trick to get you to come back to church next week because you're going to want to know what happens next. So will you listen to their story right now? My name is Aaron Thompson. I've been coming to Northeast for the last 10 years, probably consistently for the last six. Um, been in Louisville for the 10 years as well. Um, you know, been married to my wife, Katie, for what well, was going on 10 years now. Uh, we have two two kids, uh, one uh, Cohen that's five and Caroline that's three. I grew up in, in the church, you know, my dad was a deacon. My, uh, my mom taught Sunday school. We, uh, we go, to every, you know, go to church every Sunday, you know, so we do the Sunday school, church, Sunday evening church, Wednesday church, anytime the door was open and we were, we were kind of there. You know, growing up, there wasn't any alcohol in my, in my house or family or anything like that. My mom, dad, close relatives didn't really have an issue with it. Um, didn't really have my first drink of alcohol until I was 21. From the very first sip that I had, I, I liked it. You know, I, I knew that this was something that was gonna be a part of my life. I never really thought it was a problem. A lot of, pretty much everybody that was around me was doing the same thing. You know, we met a lot of friends and a lot of friends that I have today. You know, that's where we kind of found our relationship was, was through that. We had fun, you know, we, we were able to get married. We um, both worked together and he would come home and we would have, you know, a beer or a glass of wine or something like that because it's what you do. It's like what society tells you is okay. And, you know, that was fine. Um, and then I slowly was able to start seeing like a difference um, in him. And as time grew on over seven years, it would slowly become more and more consistent of me finding things, little, little bottles, big bottles, things hidden in different places, behavioral changes um, that really started to say like, this is more than I think it is. What most alcoholics see is um, they think they're getting by with a lot. And um, I thought I was getting by with a lot too. Um, but it wasn't. It was a secret that um, I was, I thought that I was concealing pretty well. Because um, you look at our life, I mean, everything that we have, everything that I grew up with, there is absolutely no reason why I should be an alcoholic. From the outside, it was like I was constantly having to hide the secret because it was like, you don't tell people about this. Like, we still have to put on this picture perfect social media smile like your happy lifestyle and always had to say like hey you know sorry we can't do this because of x y and z and we missed out on a lot with our friends and it's now you know trying to rebuild relationships because we self-isolated each other because the situation he was isolating himself but i ended up isolating myself too but in a different way because I didn't know what else to do. And I felt like I was the only person um, 
in that situation. I finally admitted to, to Katie that this, this isn't just me just drinking, you know, and having a problem with my depression, you know, and it's a little bit deeper than that. Um, so I went to a few meetings, you know, and did that, and um, it wasn't really hitting home. Um, talking about God and, you know, talking about all these kinds of things. And I was like, I've got a great understanding of God. I was like, I, I, I know who God is. And, you know, basically that's not, I don't need to go to a room, you know, and have some, you know, a bunch of alcoholics telling me what I need to do. I was like, if I have God, then I've got everything that I need in order to get this done. You know, that was probably the start of me trying to fix myself, because even though I would say that me and God, we could, we can do this, you don't necessarily understand your relationship with God at that point. Once we left for vacation, it was actually Mother's Day weekend was the weekend that we had left, and Aaron was supposed to go spend time with his family um, in Eastern Kentucky. And, you know, I was, we had chatted on that Saturday while I was traveling. Everything seemed pretty okay. Um, on Sunday when I found out he wasn't in Eastern Kentucky, I was like, hmm, this seems odd. You would have, you were supposed to go in. You told me you were going to. Um, he was like, no, I just, you know, I just kind of wanted to stay home. I have to work the next day. I'm okay. Um, and on Monday, he stopped responding. I think that if we think about all the areas of our lives, all the, the pieces of our lives, there's probably something that, that each of us can take from their story and realize um, pieces that we can relate to, pieces that have possibly been a part of your story in some capacity. I hope that, if anything, I hope that Katie and Aaron telling their story helps remind somebody that you're not alone. And I want to point out a couple of key things that Katie and Aaron both said um, that really speak to what we've been talking about already today. Katie shared about how it felt like they were keeping a secret. They were trying to um, hide what was happening in their life and put off this, this impression that, that everything was fine. And how often have, have most of us wanted so badly to put off that, give off that impression that everything is fine. But at some point, that can't continue going on. Aaron also talked about um, the moment that he realized that, you know, it was, um, he wasn't relying on God's strength in his life to help carry him through. He was relying on his own strength. And until he realized how much he needed God in his life, nothing was going to change. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll get to hear the rest of their story and the journey they've been on over the last few years since that Mother's Day weekend the ways that their marriage has changed, um, the ways that their community life has changed, the ways that their involvement at their church has changed. There's such a gift in, in getting to hear somebody's story. And I just wonder how many stories like Katie and Aaron's there are here today. Maybe you're right on the, the edge of, of taking that first step toward healing, the first step toward recovery for whatever it is that you're walking through. This is a place that wants to walk through that with you because the longer that you allow yourself um, to not move forward in that, the longer you put off the transformation that God has waiting for you on the other side of the trial, the temptation that you might be facing. That kind of growth is the most intimate ways that we can grow in our relationship with Jesus. Will you give him that chance 
to help you take that step in growth. Today, what I want to do is suggest three very simple steps that each of us can take in order to figure out what our response should be the moment that we walk through something really difficult, whether it's a temptation, a trial, a tribulation, a testing, something that just feels difficult. Let's not, let's not enable ourselves to always turn to negative coping mechanisms, but what are some positive ones that we can have readily available in our minds and in our hearts to implement when that time comes. So the first step that I would love to encourage you to work through um, whenever that moment hits is um, it's all about emotions. Um, to some of you, you're like, Mm-mm, nope, not doing it, not interested. But here's the thing. I think we all have a responsibility in any given moment to identify how we are feeling. Can you name the emotion that you're feeling? It's not just like, I'm all worked up about something. What is it really? What, are, what is the emotion that you are feeling? You can tell you have a lot of emotions to choose from. There's probably more than most of you ever wanted to know about. But how are you actually feeling and why do you feel this way? How can you ask God to help you process through that? Not to sweep that emotion under the rug, but how are you truly feeling? And what do you need to ask God to help you work through related to that emotion? Emotions are not meant to be stifled or buried or filled with shame. Emotions are a healthy reaction to what is happening in our lives, and we should treat them as such. It's not so that we can wallow all day long in our emotions, but if we can't name them, we cannot process, learn from them, and figure out how we move forward. If I can be real with you guys for a second, every time I have the opportunity to teach, whether it's three people or um, in service, there's always something that God lays on my heart that is like, this needs to be a part of your message. And I'm like, nope, not doing that. I am not going there. And um, emotions is one of those things for me because it's not an area that I have come close to perfecting in my life. Um, in fact, it's probably the opportunity where I have the, the most chance for growth. Um, so as I was heading into this weekend, knowing that I was going to talk about emotions, it will probably not surprise you that I got to be super convicted by wallowing in my emotions for a couple of days this week. I um, reached a point where I got frustrated and because I couldn't express that in a healthy way, what happened is because I didn't name that emotion and take it to God and ask him to give me strength to work through the emotion of frustration, I, I wallowed and I spiraled. And now I'm feeling fear and shame and embarrassment and all kinds of other emotions that now I have to process through all because I just didn't simply name how I was feeling and figure out what to do with how I was feeling. There's so much value in being able to do that because I've been on this lifelong journey to figure out emotions in my life. Um, almost every book that I read, if you looked at my nightstand at any given time, it's related to emotional health, it's related to relational leadership, communication, something about personalities and why we respond to things the way that we do. And one of my recent favorite books uh, was a book by Brene Brown um, that's called Atlas of the Heart. And in Atlas of the Heart, Brene Brown um, explores the 87 emotions that we go through as human beings. And for some of you, that's about 86 too many emotions. Um, but I love the way that Brene articulates how and when these different emotions are going to pop up in our lives and what the difference is between certain emotions. And um, you can tell I can talk about this all day long, but I want to read to you a quote from this book that really speaks to the importance of naming how we're feeling so that we can ask God for his strength to work through it. Here's what Brene said. She said, language is our poor 
portal to meaning-making, connection, healing, learning, and self-awareness. Having access to the right words can open up entire universes. When we don't have the language to talk about what we're experiencing, our ability to make sense of what's happening and share it with others is severely limited. Without accurate knowledge, we struggle to get the help that we need. We don't always regulate or manage our emotions in a way that allows us to move through them productively, and our self-awareness is diminished. Language shows us that naming an experience doesn't give the experience more power, it gives us the power of understanding and meaning. Naming our emotions and asking God to help us navigate them is a way that we take back that power in our lives and allow God's strength to help us move forward. So that's your first step. The second step, I'm going to ask you to determine how God has already provided for you. So often when we face difficult things in our lives, we immediately go in our minds to the things that we just don't have in order to face this trial. Whether it's a conflict, a diagnosis, um, a loss, whatever it might be, we just immediately think, I don't, I can't do this. But what if we focused instead initially on what you do have already, what God has already provided in your life to help you face what's in front of you? Can you name three things the next time you go through some type of trial, name three provisions that God has already placed in your life? And can you just express thanks to him for all that he's given you? The third and final step is that part where you're going to talk to God about what it is that you need. It doesn't mean that he's going to provide it for you, but you have an opportunity to identify something that would be really helpful for you to to approach and truly face what you're going through with. How can you ask God to stay with you as you move forward through this trial? So I want to go through those three steps again. You're going to name how you're feeling and ask God to help you process that emotion You're going to thank God for all that he's given you. And then you're going to tell him what you need. And if each of us could take that approach with the trials and the the difficult things that come up in our lives, the moment that they hit, instead of wallowing in our emotions and feeling like we have nothing that we need to face it, we'll get nowhere. If this conversation has stirred up anything inside of you, if maybe at the beginning I mentioned that care and support opportunity this Wednesday night and you immediately were like, I've got a friend I could send that to, but maybe just maybe God has now stirred up something inside of you. Is there an opportunity here for you to take that step to get yourself around a table with people like Katie and Aaron who will be there to talk to anybody who wants to come and talk about addiction and being impacted by addiction? Will you give your peers, the people in this church, the opportunity to walk with you as you figure out how to overcome adversity in your life? Would love to see you on Wednesday night. You know, again, the work that you do to overcome things like this, it's, it's internal work. It's not flashy. It's not something you're going to brag about. But it has the potential to spill over and pour out into every area of your life. And truly, it's an opportunity to cultivate resilience. Again, we don't cultivate resilience so that we become like a rubber band and just snap right back into place like nothing happened after walking through something difficult. Resiliency looks like allowing that difficult thing to mold you more like Jesus, to lead you closer to him, and it takes intentional habits and choices every single day of our lives. None of us were promised an easy life. We know that we are going to face moments in our lives that make us feel crippled or make us feel stuck, like we just can't move forward, but that is not the life that God wants for us, and it's not the life that James taught about in scripture. I'm going to read verse 12 to you again when he said, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised 
to those who love him. And again, that's eternal life with him. God has not left you in the midst of your suffering. He never will. Will you allow him to walk with you right now? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a church who wants to talk about the hard things, a church who wants to walk with people um, through what might be considered troubles uh, that have the opportunity to produce joy in our lives. We thank you that you want to see us grow and become more like you. And right now, God, we ask that that you allow your strength uh, to take over on the days that feel too difficult, um, in the moments that just we know we can't face it alone. God, we were never meant to face it alone. Stay with us. Um, Remind us that you're right there with us every single step of the way. And let us never forget the the love you have for each of us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.